This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. Let's talk about a father's love. Let's use your children as an example, children who were raised and taught in your Christian homes. And they were instructed the very best that you knew how. The older the child grew, the stronger your bond became, but something was happening that you could not help notice. Something different than what you were prepared for was happening to your child, let's say in this example. <clears throat> let's pretend that while your, body, your child's body was maturing into adolescence, your child's mind was constantly focusing on death. You loved your child dearly and did not understand what was happening to the chemicals within their brain. You knew that it was not normal to focus on death and you tried to turn their thoughts and their conversations back on to things that were more pleasant. Like sports or hobbies or anything you could do to take your mind, the mind of the child and focus it on the good things. But each time that you tried, it did not take very long before their mind focused back on death. You were frantic. This was your child. It was the flesh of your flesh and the bone of your bones. Was he suicidal? Was he a killer? Would he grow up and be imprisoned for murder? He's shown none of these tendencies, yet for some reason, some reason that you could not comprehend, the child focused on death. The child had normal friends, normal interests, normal entertainment. He laughed and he played as though nothing were wrong. But you stood there in the doorway to his room and you watched as he and his friends were enjoying each other's company. You watched as your child constantly would bring up death in their conversations. You would never abandon your child. You love him dearly and you want to do everything, everything possible that you can do to help him. You started pretending that you were not abhorred by his conversations so that you could talk to him about it 
But the more you tried, the more afraid you became. It's not in human nature to talk about death. Taking things far into the future, taping, taking the same hypothetical example, far into the future you spend your life loving, enjoying your son's companionship, and you have a wonderful father and son relationship. He's still your son, and you love him dearly. But even in the future, you watch as his thoughts focus on death. At this point, you have accepted it, and you realize that he can't help whatever change happened in his brain, in the chemistry of his brain. It wasn't his fault. Deep inside your heart, you knew that God never intended him to be this way. And time has made you realize that while he focuses on death, he is your son. He is a friend to many. He's had the Christian upbringing that you yourself gave him. You wish things were different, but you realize that the problem is much greater than human hands can fix. You finally do what you should have done at an early age, and you turn it over to God. Most of you, if placed in this situation, would love this child. You would never turn him out into the streets. You would never abandon him. Most cult churches would never excommunicate the child for his issues. And the pastors would show as much support as they possibly could. They would pray that God would intercede on your behalf and that the child would be healed. Yet at the same time, most cult churches are doing exactly what we see in this example. And they don't even know it. Families do this in their conversations and do not even know it. They're abandoning children who have focused on death. Homosexuality is a topic that is not scripturally taught in most cult churches. Quite frankly, it's not scripturally taught in many mainstream churches either because spiritual growth is limited and hindered by hardened hearts. Instead, homophobia is the topic that is spread into churches. Bible examples show one side of the story without showing the grace and mercy that Jesus describes and they point to those examples. The cult churches focus on death, but they avoid the new life that the child could enjoy by accepting Christ. Worse, some homosexuals have accepted Christ, but are not given the tools to change their lives because homophobic pastors and elders in the churches prevent it. When I first made my stand for truth, and I exposed the many lies of a false prophet, the very first character assassination that I received from a family member who is an elder in a church, they spread rumors that I was homosexual. But even though they were a family member, 
and should have shown the same love that the father in this example gave to his child, they spread the fear of homosexuality. They spread homophobia. If their lives had been molded by Christ and not Branham, they would have offered me love and support, and they would have tried to offer me the tools to find repentance for the sin that I did not have, and they would have given to me with love. Fortunately, I'm not homosexual. In fact, if there was an exact opposite in the dictionary, it would probably stand underneath, see John. <laughs> but one thing that has changed my life, a stepping stone because of one man's sin and, and false accusation, something that I'm very ashamed of in my past, I am no longer homophobic. I've realized that there are brothers and sisters, friends and family, human beings that need God to help them through certain problems that they are not able to conquer by themselves. And it has been studied by science that there are certain hormones, chemicals in the brain, that control our nature. One of those hormones, when taken away, causes homosexuality. In experiments, taking this hormone out of the brain chemistry causes animals to fiercely mate with other males in their species, even when surrounded by females of the same species. It is against human nature, except when the animal faces the same situation with brain chemistry, or when the animal has no other alternative. We see some of the similar effects. But we aren't animals. Scripturally, homosexuality is a sin. But so is gluttony. It is so ironic that the family member who spread the rumor could fill the clothes of about seven solid men, yet would rather condemn the speck in his brother's eye. A speck that wasn't even there. Homosexuality is also a worse sin than some others. And yes, you heard me right a worse sin than some of the others. While some falsely teach that no sin is greater than another, Paul tells us otherwise. Sexual sin happens outside the body. And Paul makes it very clear that sexual sin is very damaging to the bride of Christ. The common argument that is given by half-truth non-cult pastors, those who support homosexuality, is that these old laws were in the Old Testament, and we live under the New Testament of grace, which is partly correct. But they're not being entirely truthful with you. They're taking the same tactics that William Branham took. Let's tell part of the truth, but let's not tell the whole truth. In the New Testament, to the Romans, Paul says this, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now look who is the one handing them over to it. it Paul says, Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. 
men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now Paul doesn't say that they did this thing that is condemned in the Old Testament and no longer. He calls this indecent acts. <clears throat> then again to the Corinthians, Paul says this, Do you not know that the wicked, not the righteous, the wicked, will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, those who lift a man up on a pedestal, nor the adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that, I just stressed the phrase, the phrase homosexual offenders. But what if instead I stressed the word greedy? This is the same sentence that Paul says. He says, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. How many pastors, if I stress the word greedy, how many pastors would fall into that same category? How many receive the tithes, but do not give it back to the poor, as described in the Mosaic Law, that they're trying to uplift and say that we are still under? There was more than one part to the tithing law. And the people were supposed to get the money back, and those who could not afford for themselves were supposed to be given provisions. It's, it's only because of their greed that they do not keep the entire instruction of the law given by God to Moses. And that is just one of the points listed. What about slanderers and swindlers? The family member that I just described is guilty of slander, a crime that is even guilty in the court system of the United States government. Cult pastors know the story of Sodom. It's about one of the few stories in the Bible that they actually read. And taking an imbalanced sermon, they drive the point home that causes homophobia. The men and the children of the city asked Lot, Where are the angels that we may have sex with them? You're all familiar with it, because they drive it home constantly. But that is only a minor part of the reason that Sodom was completely obliterated. Leviticus 18.22 reassures us that homosexuality is a sin. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not lie with a man as, a, as with a woman. That is detestable. But you see, people did. And it had made its way into Sodom. In worship of Asherah, the breasted god, <laughs> the Baal, a, a male temple prostitute performed homosexual acts 
to bring the temples into a state of sexual utopia. It was also common in the Greeks. Other than Sodom, the Bible often speaks against homosexuality because it was attributed to the worship of Baals. So don't get me wrong, it is bad. And Sodom was condemned for homosexuality. But these pastors, they preach it over and over and over and over as though they think that we don't understand this very simple concept. And all the while, those preaching do not understand the greater concept. Because they've been programmed to focus on this little tiny thing. Ezekiel 16 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Not only does it show that God's bride was wearing earrings in conflict with William Branham's accusation that that was wrong, it also directly contradicts William Branham's Freemasonry doctrine that the Catholic Church is the great whore. It also shows God's faithfulness, and this is the reason I love the scripture. It shows God's faithfulness to each and every one of his children. God's bride, in this chapter in the Bible, Ezekiel 16, God's bride constantly turned towards death. Constantly. But like the Father in the example that we just gave you, God, the Heavenly Father, is a loving God and forgiving and showed compassion. God's bride went whoring after other gods, and Yahweh said that his bride had become such a great whore that there would never, ever again be another whore like her. Yet, God was forgiving to her many sins. And the scriptures plainly state that even Sodom would have been forgiven if only the city had helped the poor and needy. God does not say, I obliterated him because of those gay guys. Pastors who preach that Sodom was condemned only for their homosexuality and leave out the rest of the story are hiding their own guilt from you. If you examine the lives of these pastors who are teaching false doctrine, you will quickly find that the sins that push God to destroy the city are present in their own actions. The scripture says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Sister speaking again in Ezekiel to the bride of Christ, your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had great pride, which Paul says is a sin, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they have and made, listen to this, and made your sisters appear righteous, made Sodom appear righteous by the abominations that you have committed. Now God just said that if Sodom would have aided the poor and the needy, things might have been different. 
Ezekiel continues, Bear your disgrace also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins, in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. Be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters to appear righteous. So worshiping William Branham in this context is far worse than what Sodom did with homosexuality. Take the example we recently gave about Voice of God recordings during the hurricane that devastated Henryville, Indiana. How that they were very loving and generous to what they called the bride, those who sent in their money. Yet they were condemning to the other Christians who lost homes and lives and lifelong possessions. Their webpage proudly announced, not a single one of God's children was harmed. While God's children in other churches lost property and limbs and lives. If Isaiah is telling us the truth, and I believe he is, then the sins of Voice of God recordings is actually worse than homosexuality. If Isaiah's words come directly from God, then the actions of Voice of God recordings in this example actually make the homosexual community look righteous. I often use the examples of Gene Goad and Leo Mercer, examples for shock value. Most cult churches are abhorred in knowing that these two homosexual guys were responsible for the multi-million dollar industry of tape recordings that they are feasting upon. Lee Vale's testimony in a year 2000 sermon, witness testimony for those who were there, and testimony of many others outside the commune, describes these two as being homosexual. But there is one point that I must clarify. Homosexuality is a sin, scripturally, but so is gluttony. So is pride. So is condemnation of others. As a Collins, I struggle with pride. We all do. It's a Collins gene, I think. But now that I know that it is a sin, I try my best to avoid it. I can't always avoid it because, honestly, it's in my nature. There's some chemical in my brain that makes me want to be prideful. Therefore, I repent for my sin. I know I will continually sin, so I do my best to avoid the situations that could lead me to pride. And if I stumble, I ask God for forgiveness through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Gene Goad and Leo Mercer, they tried to become repentant homosexuals. They even married women. Gene likely would have succeeded, according to witness testimony, but Leo was only repentant in public, according to the witnesses that were there. The unrepentant sin of one man affected the lives of many. And because of the sin of just one homosexual, there is a trail of lives that are ruined, and there are a trail of lives that are taken. I'd like for you to take that same example that I gave you in the beginning 
of the Father loving the Son. And I'd like you to apply it to our Heavenly Father. I'd like you to apply the Heavenly Father to that story, replacing the earthly father. And how much more is the father's love for the child? How much more does the father cry out for the child who is trapped in sin? The child who's focusing on death. How angry would the father be to watch these abusive ministers making things worse for the child? How much wrath would God show if we were in the Old Testament days and the new covenant of grace was not yet applied to our lives? Would God obliterate these cult churches like he did in the days of Sodom for their prideful and their selfish ways? Every single example in the Bible contradicts their false teaching on this subject and condemns their philosophy. Jesus showed great love even to the woman who's living in filth, the woman at the well. She was living in sexual sin. And her case was actually much easier because her body chemistry was not the root cause of her sin. Her sexual sin was due to her own life decisions. Shouldn't we be more like Christ than like William Branham? Shouldn't we be less condemning, less prideful, less spiteful, more forgiving? Would we rather live our lives like the people of Sodom? Or would we rather live our lives like Christ? Shouldn't we help others who are focusing on death and lead them to Christ? Instead of turning them away, with condemnation and accusation. 